You're listening to the Second Corinthians Weakness and Strength Sermon Series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, start at verse eleven, and and before I read the scripture, just a reminder that sort of dawned on me uh, really a couple weeks ago. My wife and I were having a conversation about the Word of God, and she made this statement. I don't know where she heard it from, but I thought it was worth repeating. The only part of any service that is perfect, any service, the only part that is perfect is when the Word of God is read. And we've experienced that already. The power in the Word of God, just reading the Scripture. And so let me remind you before we start, and... uh, let you know that the only part of the service that will be perfect is this part right here, the reading of God's Word. And so look with me, if you would, at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse number 11. And again, we pick up the Scripture here in the midst of Paul dealing with confrontation. Heads up for the folks who weren't here last week, this is a, a continuation. We stopped short last week. And so this morning, my desire is to review up to a point, and then finish off, Lord willing, the message this evening. So let's look now at the Word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I am become a fool in glorying. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, in all patience, in signs and wonders, and in mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not. Lest there be debates, Envyings, wraths, strifes, backbiting, whispering, swellings, tumults. And last, when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Um, I'm going to review a little bit this morning because this chapter is basically about confrontation. From chapter 10 until the end now, and the end is in sight, chapter 13, Paul has been dealing with confrontation in the church, right? And what we said last week is this, it's not a matter of if 
you will have confrontation. If, you will have conflict. And let me just throw in accountability as well. It's not a matter of if, but when. When. Let me ask you a question this week. For those who were here last week, how many folks from Sunday until now, sometime during the week, you had some type of confrontation or conflict? Can I see your hand? Oh, someone up really quick. Like, yeah. And then they went like this. You. Okay. Fair enough. How many folks... Since that confrontation and hearing last week's message, you at least thought a little differently about it. Can I see your hand? Okay, good. Good, good, good. Let me ask you this question. Is there anybody here this morning that when the confrontation came, you were actually thankful for it? Can I see your hand? All right. A couple. But thankful. Understanding there's a purpose in confrontation. And we have said last week that over time we have developed not only unhealthy patterns of dealing with conflict, confrontation, but we respond and resolve conflict unbiblically. We said last week some of us tend to put it off. Some of us pretend it didn't happen. Some of us seek to punish others when they confront us by being silent or being harsh. And others, we pursue it. We find great pleasure and not because... Um, we want it resolved, we want edification, it's because we just like it. We look for it, we long for it, we feed on it. I don't get it, folks, but some of you just love the drama. Doesn't that get old? I mean, high school is bad enough. But in life, looking for confrontation just to have confrontation. I have family members that I, I, I mean this. They're not happy unless they're unhappy. And I don't get it. But we've developed these things. And Paul says there's a better way, a better way. And we see it in his example. Now, last week I said something, and I hope you remember, I said the most important thing that I will say all day long is this phrase. Does anyone remember the most important thing from last week? Very good, Mark. You saved me, because everyone else is like, ugh. The most important thing that we said last week, before we even started any of this, is this. That Jesus Christ saves. This morning, I so, um, I'm so thankful for the music from start to finish that was sung. Why? Because it exalted the fact that we are wretched, lost sinners in need of a Savior. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus, only Jesus, is full salvation. There is no other name. There is no other way. And Jesus Christ saves, and we said last week, Jesus Christ saves everything. This is the glory of the Christian message. Not only am I secure eternally, but Jesus Christ saves my character. What I used to be, I don't have to be that anymore. Because Christ saves everything. He saves our relationships. Because we're broken people. And they need saving. He saves our families. He saves our conflict, our confrontation. He saves our sufferings. That there's purpose and there's meaning and they're not empty. He saves our churches. He saves our communities. And someday he will save this world. He will return and rule and reign with a rod of righteousness. And he will set all things right. And I have to tell you, the older I get, the more I long in glory for that day, that day. Jesus Christ saves everything. So, with that in mind this morning, let's review about this idea of confrontation and being confronted 
and conflict and see how Christ saves that in our lives. Uh, we worked our way backwards last week. We'll do that again. And I want you to see again Paul's dread, Paul's desire, and Paul's design. Look with me at verse number 20 this morning as we talk about Paul's dread. For I fear, I'm dreadful, I'm worried about this, lest when I come, I'll find you the way I don't want to find you, and you'll find me the way you don't want to find me. And then he talks about this idea of envying, debates, wrath, strife. It's a mess. And his fear was this. This is his dread. That this conflict that we have to have could blow up. It could go sideways. And, and I think we all understand that. Whenever we have to confront someone, we understand that there's a chance that it could blow up in our faces. And a real chance in Corinth because this church was immature spiritually and they were worldly. That's why he gives a list there. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 last week. But the, the problem is, he says, this could blow up. People could explode, which is our natural tendency when someone confronts us. Um, or we could play the victim card. Listen to me. We live in a world today where we, we want to be victims. We victimize, and everyone's a victim. And that might make you feel better for a time, but can I tell you something? It never helps anyone. Everybody has trouble. Everybody has problems. Everybody has a hand that's been dealt with them that has issues. You want to play the victim, go ahead. But you will never find healing in that route. Never. Someone confronts us, and now we're the victim. Oh, I feel so sad. Stop it. Stop it. Especially if you're a man. Stop it. Really. We get offended. Or we think of it as a personal attack, you know. And Paul says, I'm coming to you, and the, tra- the chances are that this will explode. You'll be victimized. You'll be offended. You'll take it personally, and you'll pout, and you'll whine, and you'll sulk. But that's not my desire. He says in, in verse number 19 of our text, here's my desire. Look at the end of the verse. He says, before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. Paul says, the real reason why I'm confronting this church And the problems that you're facing is because I don't want to destroy you. I don't want you to fight. I don't want you to flee. But I want you to flourish. I want to confront you so that when you're confronted with truth, you then can grow up. When confrontation is done under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's our goal. With the commitment to love for the flourishing of others, it's edifying. It builds us up. A couple of people said, I raised my hand. I was glad for the confrontation. Why? Because I understand it's through that confrontation that I am built up. People are confronting the weakness in my life, the sin in my life, the blind spots in my life. That's how we grow. And God uses confrontation in the life of the believer to help us grow up. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, verses 14 and 15 are worth looking at again that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they wait, lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into all, into him in all things, which is ahead, even Christ. And God's plan and purpose, and Paul's plan and purpose is this. I'm going to confront you, but in the confrontation I want you to know the reason, my desire, is that you will be edified. You will be built up. I'm coming to confront you for edification. And here's Paul's design. Here's how he does it. Look with me, if you would, at verse number 14 of our text. He says, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, 
and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul says, as I confront you, as I appeal to you, I want you to remember a couple things. I want you to remember that I'm a father to you spiritually. Paul comes to a church. It's, it's not off the cuff. It's not as if he doesn't know them. He is a father to them spiritually, and this commands respect. There is something in the fact that, that over time, over investment, this church knew that Paul poured his life out, blood, sweat, and tears, for these people, he literally was the spiritual father. He, by God's grace, started this church, and he earned the right to have a hearing with these people. He earned the right to speak truth into their lives. And Paul says, I'm going to confront you, but I want you to remember, as I confront you, you know I have been a spiritual father to you. It's a sign of respect, and it's a response of love. Real love. My friend this morning, listen to me. And I feel bad for our young people growing up today. Our concept of what real love is is really skewed. Because real love must confront error that leads to destruction. Right? That's what love does. Okay, let me help our young people this morning. When, when your parents tell you no about something, right, whatever age you are, no, it's a bad idea. And you say, ah, why you don't love me? You just hate me. Right? That's why we have children, because we just want to hate little people. That, that's exactly. We have children because we want to hate little people. You just hate me. Can I tell you something, young people? Listen to me. Um, hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. And indifference says, I couldn't care less what you do, where you go, who you hang with, what you drink, where you part. I couldn't care less. That's the difference. And real love says, wait a minute. I love you enough to say, stop it. No. Don't go there. It's not just for our children. It's for us as well. And Paul says, I'm appealing to you in this confrontation to remember, I am a spiritual father to you. I've invested in you. I have a right to speak truth. And I do it in love. Love is not watching a train wreck when you can stop it. And everyone thinks they're the exception. You're not. I'm not. No one is. And so that's where we left off sort of last week. Now, let me give you practical wisdom in this area of relationship of spiritual father. Okay? And there's a couple things that I want you to be aware of in a practical way now because I think that after last week we had this idea of what it means to sort of mentor one another and the... the, the the, um, the, the background of the church. And so a couple things to think about as we move through this point. Number one, let's have wisdom in, in beginning this. I think it's really important that you have people who speak truth into your life for all of us. Let me say something now for our younger Christians this morning. It is incumbent upon you to seek out spiritual mothers and fathers in your life. You need that. You need that. And I'm really concerned today. We got 20-year-olds raising kids going to 20-year-olds to find out how to raise kids. We got blogs now written by 20 and 30-year-olds on how I dealt with my 2-year-old as if they're done. 
You think the twos can be terrible? Try the teens. Amen? Yeah. Or even the 20s. And hopefully not the 30s. If they're still on yourself eating chips, that's a problem. Okay? You need to sort of light a fire under them. But, but we, have, we have 20-year-olds going to 20-year-olds. Listen to me. If you want to know something, find a spiritual mother or father in your life who's been through that. This happens in marriage all the time. I don't understand this. And help me. Young couples are having trouble in their marriage. And so they find another couple somewhere around their age who's also having trouble in their marriage and ask them how to do marriage. Now listen to me. Does that make sense to you? Unless their marriage stinks and you're saying, hey, how did you do what you did so I don't do that? Do you understand that? i got a better idea for you. If you're a young believer and you're looking how to have marriage the right way, I would start with this. 58 years. Oh, but you'll buy a book on Amazon and have it covered or read a blog. I would buy this book right here. Or go over here for 50 plus years. Or, oh, never mind, 47. Who cares? Who cares? 47, that's nothing. 65 years. Right? Norris and Doris, can I grab you? 52. I mean, it goes on and on. And, and Burl's here this morning. 60, 61 years. Now, I don't know. I might be stupid. But doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? That here's the body of Christ. And you young people, you are wasting valuable, valuable information and wisdom. But you'd rather go someplace else. And Paul says, wait, a spiritual father here. I've walked through this. And these people will be honest and tell you, listen, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. It's hard. We struggle. L- listen, young love is beautiful. I love I, I do love weddings. I love to see young people in, in love and, and see the, the groom watch the bride as the door opens. And I like to watch his It's a beautiful thing. But I want to tell you something. Far more beautiful ever than young love is old love. Going through cancer, going through sickness, going through trouble, going through heartache. And so, young people, listen, you ought to be looking for spiritual fathers, and that's on you. No one talked to me. Well, get off your rear end and go find somebody. You're the center of the universe, right? Everyone just gravitates to you. Get off your rear end and find somebody. The church is full of people to help you. So it's incumbent on you to find someone. Then let me talk to the others who are older here. Um, We need to make sure that if we're going to be spiritual fathers and mothers, that it's in accordance to our investments in the lives of others. Some of you folks after last week maybe thought, yeah, I need to do this. And so you went up to someone and said, hey, I'm your new spiritual daddy. Two problems with that. Number one, it's weird. Really weird. And number two, you have no investment in their life. They don't even know your last name. And they couldn't care less that somehow you're going to feel better now and you're going to be so gracious and take them under your wing. That, That doesn't work. Because you've not made an investment in their life. You've not been around. You've not showed up. You've not been depositing in their life goodness and grace and wisdom and knowledge and help and love and prayers. And so you come along thinking that you should just follow my lead on this. It will not happen. 
You've never made an investment. You were out of the picture until last week. My home that I grew up in was broken. It was broken terribly. At seven years old, my dad and my mom divorced. He left my mom with three boys to raise uh, in the heart of Cleveland. And uh, they got back together later on in life. And then at the age of 12, after they're back together, they separated again. Right? Crazy story. They've been married now for 30 years after that. Okay? So it, it all worked out. I have to tell you something. It was a time when I was a teenager when my dad came back the second time. And he tried to speak truth into my life. It was like, eh, no thanks, man. Where were you when I needed you? Right? Don't come playing dad now because I don't need you at 12, 13, 14. I needed you from 7 to about 12, right? Right or wrong, that was my attitude. And it took me a long time to my 20s to be broken and to repent and seek forgiveness and help there, and I did. But that attitude is, where have you been? And so, mature believer, don't show up at someone's doorstep that you they don't even know who you are. I'm your new spiritual mom and dad. It's ridiculous. Start investing in the lives of people in this church. And then we have to have wisdom in balancing this as well. We talked last week about the hands-off idea, that if I'm going to actually mentor, be accountable to people, that I don't care what they do, I just, I just it's a title. That's ridiculous. And some of you, though, it it's... It's not just hands-off, it's sort of you just hover over people, and they can't breathe. That's not healthy either. When our kids were younger, like in their teens, and if we had a, a, a disagreement with them and sent them up to their room, and maybe it was heated, and they'd shut the door, I, here, here's the kind of parent I was. I'd run up and put my ear to the door and listen. You know what I was listening for? The first bad comment about your mom and dad. And I'm coming in there. What did you say? Pound the door open. Here I am. Uh, what's going on? I heard everything you said. And some of you folks, you do that with Christian people. You, you give them no space. You're there all the time. You hover over them. It's not healthy. Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do life with each other. Life. We do life together like families do. That's the idea. And Paul says, I am speaking truth in your life because I've been a spiritual father to you. We need the same thing here on both ends. We need young people to say, I need this, and older people to say, I'm finally at a place where I can do this. I'm going to start investing in the lives of people here. So that's Paul's design. He's the father spiritual. But here's the second thing. This is where we left off last week. Um, Verse number 16, he was a man of faithful integrity. Faithful integrity. Verse number 16. Be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. He's being facetious there. That's sarcasm. Verse 17. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Here's what Paul says, really important. Not only am I speaking and confronting you to build you up and edifying you, remembering I'm a father spiritually, but I am a man of faithful integrity. Paul and his team were men of integrity, living out their faith. And their words meant something because of the measure of their lives. Right? When, when Paul and his team confronted the Corinthian believers, what they said meant something because their lives were lives of integrity. It wasn't just speaking out both sides of your mouth. It meant something. 
I'm not talking about perfection this morning. We'd all be disqualified. But I am talking about men and women this morning who are serious about growing up and being men and women of integrity. You know this. In our world today, everyone's trying to rip you off. Everybody. They're scamming on the Internet. They're scamming everywhere. You know, you think you're getting a deal. Everyone's trying to rip you off. Everyone's trying to cheat and scam and, 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 and try to look like they're working and not working. It's the world. We need men and women who are growing. They're becoming men and men, women of integrity. There ought to be evidences of your life, in your life, of spiritual growth and integrity. Granted, our faith is certainly personal. We come to a personal decision, repenting and believing in Christ, but it's not private. In our lives, there should be evidences that we are becoming men and women of integrity. Integrity. We're a new creature. Not only that, we should be able to see the log in our own eyes. Paul could speak truth to them because he knew, not perfect, did not arrive yet, but he was trying to be a man of integrity. And for many of us, when we confront people, our word fall to the ground. Because as soon as they leave our lips, the, the friend, the church member, the kid, the spouse, knows that you're just full of it. Let me give you an example. Um, and, and this is just the way, this has been my experience raising three boys. We've, we've loved raising three boys. But there comes a time in the life of every one of those boys, and, and, and don't, just be quiet for a minute. Um, there comes a time with every one of those boys that they don't want their mother or a woman telling them what to do. I'm just telling you, man. You say what you want, call me whatever you want. I'm just telling you, this is the way it is. For every one of our sons, there was a time and place when it's like, I don't want that woman telling me what to do, right? Now, it's, it's not right, but I think it's part of their independence and trying to be a man, trying to someday lead a family, and, and that's a good thing. But I remember with, with one of them in particular, he, he mouthed off to his mom. It's like, come here, boy. And against the wall, I said, that's my wife. You don't talk to her like that. I wouldn't let another man come in this house and talk to her like that. And he got it. He's a little scared and sweating, but he got it, right? Which was a good thing. Now listen to me. Some of you guys are out there like, hey, yeah, you ought not ever talk to that woman like that. You're, she's your mother, and she's experienced more pain than you could ever imagine. And she has. God bless you, women. We love you. Without you, this world would die. Because there's not a man on this planet who's going through birth. Not any of them. And I'm, I'm serious. God bless you. But let me ask you something, Dad. When you're getting in your kid's face and you're telling him, don't talk to that woman like that, are you talking to that woman like that? Are you disrespecting that woman in front of him? Do you act like she's stupid? That you roll your eyes when she says something like, yeah, that's a dumb idea, kid. Yeah, yeah. Then your words just fell to the ground. In churches, you know, here's some pious, self-righteous Pharisee who comes up and says, uh, brother, I just want to talk to you. I've detected a spirit of pride and arrogancy in your life. And as they're saying it, arrogance and pride are oozing out of their pores like slime. Yeah, like slime. It's disgusting. And can I tell you something? If that brother or sister has a problem with pride, just your attitude, you just ruined it, man. Now, granted, even... A crooked stick can be used to draw straight lines. I get it. And all the analogies, even a broken clock is right twice. I understand all of it. But I want to tell you something. For many of us, Paul says, I'm going to confront you. I'm a father spiritually, and I have been faithfully a man of integrity. 
And because of that, there was power in what he said. Now, let's wrap this up this morning. All right? Here are the points. Just three. Two will be sound familiar. The one is new from last week. Number one, we must do the hard work of holding people accountable in loving and edifying ways. That's hard work. And it must be done. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ is not a club. It's not like joining the gym or the Y. The church of Jesus Christ is a called out body of believers, blood washed saints who come together to be accountable because we all fall, we all fail, we all have blind spots, we all blow it. And so we have to do the hard work of loving people enough to put ourselves out there and, and hammer the. What does it look like to be loving and edifying? We've got to hammer that out. This church must do that. We must do that. Number two is we must be willing to take the hits to resolve those caught in the snares of sin and selfishness. Be willing to take the hits when we put ourselves out there. You might hate me right now, but I'm telling you the truth. It's okay if you hate me. It's okay if you turn your back, but this is the truth, and I tell you because I love you. And number three, we must be willing to be hit with truth and honest with our own law sticking out of our face. Right? If you can think about Jesus telling that parable, it's hilarious. You have the beam in your head, like a two-by-four, and you're going up to a brother or sister to try to take a speck of dust out of their eye, and you completely miss the fact that you've got a stinking beam sticking out of your head. That's problematic. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to say, wait a minute, I need to step back a second. God, search me, try me. What are the logs in my eyes? We all do this. We all have glaring things in our life, and we can ignore that and find something insignificant in the brother or sister that's a problem for us. A lady years ago, not in this church, another church, who was um, a real stickler with the rules, right? More fundamental maybe more dumb in the fundamental, but more fundamental in this idea of, I've got these rules, I've got these things. And so she bragged about how she would wear nothing, she'd never wear britches. You know what britches are? I guess they're pants, right? She would never wear britches or pants or anything. She would only wear dresses and culottes. Culottes are weird. I can't explain those. But culottes, right? And she bragged about her righteousness in wearing her culottes and wearing her skirts. And the truth is, she watched filthy stuff all the time on television. And we'll look down to the first woman who walked into church with a pair of pants on. And it's ridiculous. And we do that. We gotta stop. We gotta stop. You know what the gospel does? The gospel brings me back to reality and says, hey, Rick, you know what you are? You're a lost sinner in need of a Savior and grace every day. So quit looking around in your self righteousness and get on your face before me and realize that you're a sinner first and foremost. It's the gospel. So. Paul said to this church, don't fight. If anyone loves you, you're going to be confronted. Don't fight. Don't explode. Don't play the victim card. Don't make excuses. And that's hard. It's really hard. Don't flee. Don't think that you're coming to church here, you join the church here, then something happens, someone confronts you, and you say, you know what I think I need now? Hmm, I need a clean start. I think I need another church, because you people just don't understand me. I think there's some clicks there. Yeah, there's clicks there. I've just never been accepted there. Then you go someplace else. You know what happens after three years? Oh, I think I need no church. There's clicks there. It never ends because you are the at least part of it. Don't flee. 
but instead we need to flourish when it comes to confrontation. Okay? So, that's it. That's it. So, okay, that's really great. I see it. It's important. I would really like to flourish. And if you're a believer this morning, when you hear truth, you instinctively know that that's right. I see the confrontation. Some of you folks have seen it already this week, maybe in a new light. And you say, okay, that's true. I would love to flourish in this. But I know myself. I can't ever imagine, I mean, honestly, I hate to confront anybody in the first place, let alone doing it in a way that's loving and edifying. I, I can't. I, I can't do that. And others say, there's no way. When I'm confronted, I know already. I know my, my default setting is I explode, I excuse. I, I just, I can't do that. So we sit here and think, this is it. This is what I need. I want to grow up. I, this is what I want. And your heart yearns for that. But the truth is, you say, this is no, there's no way. I'm envisioning right now this confrontation, and that's not how they're going to respond or how I'm going to respond. I don't want to put myself out there. It's a problem. After the service last week, I'm always one of our men, but Dan Smolders, was saying, hey, I was thinking about that. And he said, you know, there's something else that I think we should add to that. It was really good. It was a good point. He said, we should die. We should die. The point was, if you and I really want to flourish in this area, there has to be a fatality. Somebody has to die. You're thinking, good, the guy I'm confronting, they need to die. Okay, that's, no, you just missed it. That's not, that's not what I'm, I'm not worried about the guy you're confronting or the girl you're confronting. I'm worried about us, that we must die. We must die to self, because all of this is impossible. The Christian life is impossible. The, the, having victory over sin, impossible, until we die to self. We have this verse in John chapter 12 this morning, and Jesus gives a, a hint of this. Verse number 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Christ is talking about his own death, but that principle is throughout all of Scripture. Die. Look at Mark chapter 8 this morning, and uh, just verse 34. Mark 8, 34. When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross, crucified, crucifying self. Listen, we're going to talk about the cross on Friday. Good Friday. You, you got to, you, well, the gospel's always talking about the cross. You can't. The cross is it. But you know, Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher, said that in, in polite conversation, the idea of crucifixion should never come up because it was so brutal and terrible and excruciating. In polite company, don't even talk about it. So when Jesus says to his disciples, hey, just let you know, take up your cross and follow me, they knew, they saw, they watched. This was Rome's tool to say, if you rebel against us, this is what will happen to you. And they controlled the masses because of the pain of the cross. Why? It meant certain death. Jesus says to his 
disciples, his followers. You want to follow me? Great. We got a great plan here. Here's what it entails. Grab a cross and die to self. And no one likes it. No one. It's the self-life. That's why I don't confront people because I want them to think I'm a good guy or I'm lazy or I don't care or I'm indifferent. Or I confront people because I'm self-righteous and I, I just want to spew it out or I think I got this or I got that. It, it's a problem with self. Listen to the words of Tozer. He says, my and mine look innocent enough, but constant and universal use is significant. They are symptoms of a deep disease. And in our lives, Self-ambition, self-goals, self-desires, self-interest, self-importance, self-exaltation, self-glory, self, self, self. And so, we sit here this morning and we think, yes, I need to do that. I, I want to flourish. My, my heart longs for this. But you and I know we'll walk out of here and it will not happen and it will never happen until we die to self. And understand that this old man, he was crucified in Christ. And I don't have to be who I once was. One more verse we'll close with. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. The word reckon means to consider, to believe this to be true for yourself. That when Christ died on the cross, when he died, his believers, our old nature, was crucified with him. It was put to death. And now we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's tons to talk about here. And I'm not even going to start because I know. But tonight I'm going to talk about the rest of this. But listen to me. At least understand this. If we're going to flourish in our lives, we have to understand our, our new identity in Christ. That we are no longer the old man, the old woman. The, the reactions that I've had in the past, they do not define me anymore. Why? Because my identity is different today. I am not who I used to be. And you and I, by faith, must reckon that to be true before we ever think about flourishing in this area. And for that matter, ever having victory over sin. We've got to reckon ourselves dead to it. Because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ not only saved me from the penalty of sin, but by his goodness, he saved me from the power of sin. And so this morning, I hope you have a desire to do it right. To confront the right way in love, to edify, to be confronted the right way, to listen to truth and, and make adjustments. But you and I know, we'll walk out of here, the first time we're confronted, we'll go back to all of the old habits. Why? Because we don't reckon the old man to be dead. There has to be a fatality. And you and I, the self-life, must die. You want to flourish? I do. He's got to kill the old man and wreck him to be dead.